Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. The passage before us is just absolutely fascinating. There is so many cool and exotic tropes in this passage. And it ends, of course, with the conversion of this Ethiopian eunuch. Good news. The first high-status individual in Acts to come to Jesus. So listen now to the story. Acts 8:26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, "Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza." This is desert. So he arose and went and behold a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said to him, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? For his life is taken up from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see not only the exoticism of this story, but also the solid gospel meat that's here. Especially how Philip preached Jesus and how the word of God that told of the Son of God saved this Ethiopian man. Father, we thank you for your work, your saving work. Thank you that your kingdom rules, even over exotic people from exotic places, when they hear and respond in faith. Help us to do just that, to hear and to respond in faith today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke brings the section on breaching temple boundaries and the inclusion of groups that are further and farther away on the periphery of Judaism to a fitting conclusion with this story. We had the man at the beautiful gate who was able to enter into the temple for the first time after Peter and John healed him back in chapter 3. Now we have an Ethiopian, a eunuch, who is also able to come into the assembly of the Lord for the first time. 
after meeting with Philip and hearing about Jesus. It's a bridge to the inclusion of the Gentiles, which will come up in the next couple of chapters. It shows the inclusion of the injured, the disabled, the exotic, the outcast. They are welcome, not as second-class people, but as first-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Christ's kingdom certainly rules, even over exotic people from exotic places. That's Luke's message for us this morning. We start with the exotic circumstances, and there are a lot of them. First, of course, is simply this arise and go down to the south or to the Negev. This is the desert. Now, where was Philip in the previous section? Well, he went to the city of Samaria. That's where evangelism goes. To evangelize, what do you need? You need a target audience. You need people who will listen to you. I could do street preaching on any number of Campbell County roads, and I could preach for a whole hour and never have a single car drive by. And those roads, perhaps, are very well trafficked compared to this desert road where Philip was possibly even going at noon, depending on how you translate this word. It could be a rise and go toward the south. It could be a rise and go at noon along the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Either way, it's a desert place. It's a place without people. Philip is an evangelist. He was in Samaria. He saw massive crowds converted under his preaching. And then the next verse, God tells him, go where there's nobody. Leave everything and go out into the desert. Today, we should note this road no longer exists. Or rather, that this road is sealed. The border between between Israel and Gaza is a hardened border. Uh, Philip wouldn't be allowed through. The eunuch would not be allowed through in these days. And it's a reminder to us to continue to pray for both Jerusalem and Gaza. Places that today are spiritually much darker than they were at the time when Luke was writing. Anyway, pray for Jerusalem and Gaza, but Philip goes, and he goes at noon, when it's hot, when nobody in their right mind is traveling, when even the sand fleas are hiding from the sun, Philip is put down out here in the desert. God cares not only about groups, Samaritans, but about individuals. And this individual is an interesting one. As one commentator put it in what I thought was kind of an inspired formulation, he's a personage of murky physical, ethnic, and religious status. Murky physical, ethnic, and religious status. First of all, Luke, of course, says that he's a man, a eunuch. Well, which is it, Luke? The word eunuch doesn't necessarily mean someone who's been castrated. The term, so many of those people served as officials in court settings in the ancient Near East and through classical times that the word eunuch came to mean something like official. He could just be an official, except why would Luke call him a eunuch if he was an official? So, Murky physical status, murky religious status. He's come to Jerusalem to worship, so he has some knowledge of Judaism, but 
he seems like a Gentile. He's from Ethiopia. Except Luke lavishes a lot of attention on the conversion of the first Gentile in chapter 10. And so a little story like this probably isn't the conversion of a Gentile. Jew or Gentile? We're not sure. Man or eunuch? We're not sure. And <coughs> ethnic status. He's an Ethiopian. What does that mean? Well, it means, obviously, as Luke describes, he works in the Ethiopian administration. Luke doesn't tell us, per se, what color the man's skin was, how dark he is, how light he is. Does he look like a Middle Easterner? Does he look like a black African? Luke is not particularly interested in those questions. Murky ethnic status. But whoever this guy is, he certainly stacks smacks of the exotic. What Luke does emphasize for us is his socioeconomic status. How many high-ranking people have we seen converted so far in Luke and Acts? Oh, that's right. None. Closest we've gotten is the wife of Herod's butler. Joanna, the wife of Chusa Herod's household manager, who donated money to Jesus. Well, to be a king's butler is something. But at the end of the day, a king's butler is, well, he's in the servant class. You're at the very top rung of the slave class, but you are in the very lowest of social classes. And who else has been converted? Fishermen, like Peter. Tax collectors, like Matthew. The highest government officials that we've seen are Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're members of the Sanhedrin. But this guy, this is a, he's in a whole different boat. This man is a cabinet official. And he is not in the second or third tier of the cabinet. He's top tier cabinet. His position is what we in the U.S. call Secretary of the Treasury, comparable to a position is currently held by Janet Yellen in our administration. Or in Britain, what they refer to as the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the position currently held by Rishi Sunak. Again, this guy is very close to the Queen of the Ethiopians. You could argue that only the Secretary of Defense has a higher cabinet ranking. This fellow is right next to top shelf status. And Luke emphasizes that in a number of different ways. For instance, the fellow owns a Bible. He was returning and sitting in his chair, he was reading Isaiah the prophet means he brought this Bible with him. Well, a Bible in our day is not an expensive artifact. You can buy a very nice Bible for $75. But in this day, a Bible was comparable to a hand-done oil portrait. You're paying an exceptionally skilled craftsman, minimum six months labor, plus materials, to create for you a hand-copied parchment roll or vellum roll, something like that, where you can carry this book around. So, if you can imagine that 
The cheapest Bible you can find is going to cost three months' wages, a decent Bible, six months' wages. And this fellow has one. And not only does he have it, he's reading it while on the road. A rebuke to us, how often do we read our Bibles on vacation? The Ethiopian eunuch read his. And he has his own private chariot with a driver. Again, right, comparable to a limousine with a driver in our day. This is all markers of status that this fellow undoubtedly has. So the crazy thing about him, what really jumps out, there are plenty of high-status people in this world. Some of them even own Bibles and other nice artifacts, but this guy is devout. And by devout, we mean exceptionally, almost crazily devoted to what he knows about God. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, if you go overland today from Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, to Jerusalem, the trip is... 2,600 miles, roughly the distance from New York to San Francisco, which is 2,800 miles. And this fellow had made the trip, apparently in a chariot, possibly by water, but either way, it's a long old way. Uh, Commentators tell us that ancient Ethiopia was not in the same place as modern Ethiopia, that this Ethiopia was actually centered at Moreau in what's today South Sudan, well, that's much better. That's only 1,800 miles from Jerusalem. So the distance from right where we're standing to New York City, 1,837 miles. And this fellow had made the trip with first century travel technology, whether he had managed to sail up the Nile whether he had gone overland the whole way, we don't know. But the fact is that the route was certainly no better, no nicer, no safer than it is today. And this man had said, I believe in the God of Israel to the point where I'm willing to travel that distance in order to get to Jerusalem and worship the living God. He was serious about worshiping God, incredibly serious. We all know people who are reluctant to travel two or three miles in an air-conditioned car to get to worship. This man had gone, what we would call, all the way to New York, either pulled by horses or on his own two feet in order to worship God. And, of course... That would take a minimum of six months. How does the treasurer of Ethiopia get six months vacation? Luke doesn't tell us. It's another marker of exoticism. This guy has money, he has status, and he has a heart for God. And yet, though he's a high-status man, a devout man, he's also an excluded man. We can imagine, perhaps, becoming some kind of rabid Yankees fan, traveling all the way to New York in order to see a Yankees game, only to get to Yankee Stadium and be told, you can't enter, you're not vaccinated. It could happen. 
Now, were you to do that, what could you do? You could find a vaccination location there in New York and get topped off, and within a few weeks, you would be allowed to enter Yankee Stadium. But there were no testicle repair facilities in Jerusalem. There was no way that this eunuch, once he got there, was allowed to enter the temple. We read it in Deuteronomy 23. No one whose testicles are crushed, whose male organ is cut off, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. He travels all that way. Maybe his Bible didn't include Deuteronomy. Maybe he didn't care. He gets there and he's told, stay out. Worship God from a distance, eunuch. He is an excluded man. Not because of his politics, his color, his profession, or his wealth, but because of his physical condition. And God himself had set it up that way. To teach his people about the kind of purity and wholeness, integrity, demanded in the service of the Lord. How wrong then, of course, when we today try to recreate some kind of Levitical system and bar certain people from the assembly of the Lord on the basis of you name it. Certainly a crying one is color. Oh, you're an Ethiopian? You're not allowed in here. Our country did that for quite some time. But there are many others. Your politics are wrong. Your health is wrong. Your physical condition is wrong. Your clothing is wrong. You're not allowed in our assembly of the Lord. Now, reading this passage through Christian lenses, where our heart goes out to this Ethiopian. He traveled 1,800 miles in order to be told he could not enter the assembly of the Lord. Reading the passage through first century Jewish lenses, what would we say? He shouldn't have tried to come in. He had no business defiling God's holy place with his putrid carcass. We would feel no more pity for him than we would for a rat that we caught in our cupboard eating our bread. Yuck! Get out of there, rat! Luke is showing us boundaries being crossed. He's showing us people who have been excluded from the congregation of the Lord, people who are on the fringe, no matter how devout they are, are being brought into full fellowship in this new covenant era. So also, just as an aside, what else is Luke showing us? The first high-status convert was most likely a black African. The church was in Africa long before it was in North America always good for us to remember. They are our older brothers and sisters in the faith. A lot older. So the Spirit says to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. If you listen to the Spirit, there are times when he will tell you to share the gospel with somebody. I can't tell you when he'll do that, but I know that he will. Now obviously, You would think Philip is on the desert road and he's just standing there and here comes a chariot. And this is the one, Philip. This is why I brought you here. And Philip, 
runs up and overtakes the chariot. Now people have wondered how fast the chariot was going. It probably was not going as fast as the horses could go. Philip overtakes the chariot and the Ethiopian invites him in. And, well, they have this conversation which is so funny. How can I unless someone guides me? And he asks Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip is running alongside saying, oh, I hear you reading something. And the Ethiopian says, yeah, but I don't know what it means. It's a wonderful scene. And Philip gets in the chariot and starts explaining scripture. The Ethiopian has just one question. Who is this about? What is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. That's what evangelism is. Sharing Jesus. Saying, this is Jesus. Here's who he is. Here's what he did. Here's how he's described in the Bible. Right? Evangelism does not mean the ability to manipulate big words, to discuss historical, text-critical questions, to understand philosophy. Evangelism means sharing Jesus. That's what Philip did. That's what the eunuch heard. If you can tell people about Jesus... You can be an evangelist. Right, Philip does not get up and say, I'm so sorry that the Jerusalem establishment has a bad case of eunuch phobia. That's really sad. We in Jerusalem are working on them. We're trying to break down those temple boundaries, but we're not there yet. He's not therapeutic in his approach, trying to soothe the eunuch's wounded feelings. <coughs> he is Christ-centered in his approach. And the outcome of evangelism then is baptism. They're going down the road, they find water, and the eunuch says, what hinders me from being baptized? Now, it seems likely, as you probably noticed when I was reading, most modern translations don't have verse 37 in the text. Verse 37 has been relegated to a footnote because most ancient manuscripts don't contain it. It's almost as though somebody saw the eunuch's question and said, ooh, i got to answer this question. What hindered him from being baptized? And then Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. But most likely, Philip did not say that. If he did say it, Luke probably did not record him saying that. My great-uncle's autobiography, he tells how he read this verse, and that's what made him a Baptist. If you believe with all your heart, you may. So, only people who believe with all their heart and consciously know it can get baptized. End of discussion. I don't know if he didn't know that this is a textual variant or what, but it's a shaky verse to build your doctrine of baptism on. What it says is true. Baptism is for those who believe. Why? Well, not the sequence doesn't go belief, then baptism, to testify to that belief. The sequence is baptism is God's message to you about his promise to you. And fundamentally, that's seen in that you have to be baptized by someone else. What hinders me from being 
baptized. It's always a passive thing. It's something you undergo that comes to you from outside. You can't baptize yourself. Baptism is the sign and seal of God's promise to you, and then you're obligated to believe that promise. So the sequence should go baptism, belief. Now that Logically speaking, that doesn't mean chronologically speaking that you always have to be baptized before you believe. But nor can you take it the other way. You always have to believe before you can be baptized. Baptism puts you on the hook to believe. And therefore, if you have no intention of believing, it's foolish to get baptized. Don't increase your obligation to do something you have no intention of doing. Right? There are two nations in the world that charge taxes on their citizens no matter where the money is earned. Those two are, of course, North Korea and the United States. Now, if you have no intention of paying taxes to Kim Jong-un, don't go take out North Korean citizenship. It's a bad idea. You only increase your liability to something you don't want. So yes, if you don't believe, don't get baptized. Not because baptism is only for those who already believe, but because baptism demands that you believe. Whether before you get baptized, after you get baptized, while you're being baptized, it increases your obligation to believe. So, whether Philip and the eunuch had this conversation in verse 37 or not, Baptism is the fruit of evangelism. If you think you've seen somebody converted, tell them you need to be baptized. And of course, the eunuch already knew this. Perhaps Philip had just told him, you need to get baptized. So the eunuch is baptized. They both go down into the water and he baptized him. Some have argued that this has to be immersion. Again, that's not in the text. Whatever one did, the other did. Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Luke names them both, and he uses the word both to indicate that whoever went into the water, the other one did the same thing. They both went down into the water, and they both came up out of the water. While they were in the water, Philip did something that Luke calls baptism. Luke doesn't tell us whether that was immersion, sprinkling, or pouring. They come up. The Spirit of the Lord catches Philip away. The eunuch sees him no more, but he doesn't really care. He went on his way rejoicing. He had gotten something better than a day pass to the temple. He had received the Lord Jesus. Philip, meanwhile, goes to Azotus, and preaches his way up the coast to Caesarea. There's an ongoing need for evangelism, Luke is telling us by this. Yes, the Samaritans have been accepted. Yes, the eunuch has been accepted. But Philip shouldn't just hang up his hat, close his Bible, and say, well, I'm done. No more need for that. He continued to evangelize. So what's the message? Jesus reigns even over exotic people from exotic places. The gospel is not just for fishermen and other low-status people. The gospel is equally as much for 
high-status people, people involved in the councils of state. Christ can and does reign over them. So admire and worship the Lord Jesus. His kingdom brings in outcasts and makes them his own. And imitate Christ. Include those outcasts who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the devoutness of this eunuch, how he had traveled over 1,800 miles to come and to be in your presence in Jerusalem, how you sent Philip to meet him and bring him to a better understanding that the place of worship is not in Jerusalem anymore. Rather, we meet with you in the assembly of your people wherever we are. Lord Jesus, thank you that you rule over the exotic that people from far away, from totally different social classes, can equally be saved and included in the body of Christ. Help us to know that, to believe that, to worship you because of that, to enact that practically in our own body here. We praise you, Lord, that you reign. In Jesus' name, amen.